Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, where we're taking a brief reprieve from the wise man's fear to discuss Patrick Rothfuss's Bast-centric short story, The Lightning Tree. This story first appeared in the 2014 anthology Rogues, edited by George R.R. Martin and Gardner Dojoy, and will receive a standalone expanded release here in a few days called The Narrow Road Between Desires. A few days as we record this, a couple of days, probably a week before you got this. Fair. Given that, we figured it would be fun to spend a few episodes talking about this original version so that we have something to compare the full release to later on. Hope you enjoy. This will be the last of the episode centering on the lightning tree, and we actually should be getting our copy of The Narrow Road Between Desires in a couple of days. So we may, if we are good little podcast hosts, might be able to get into the next story and do our comparison starting next time. Here's to hoping. Crossing fingers. So... This goes a little bit different from our normal format, since we're really just looking at a chunk of the story. We're going to discuss it more generally, and then wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our lives. Hope you enjoy. And also, just the disclaimers, we are in no way affiliated with the publisher of this book, which is Bantam. We are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss, or Daw Books, who is his normal publisher. And please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And naturally, there will be spoilers. There will be so many spoilers. This is the end of the story. And one of the things about this that I do want to point out, I feel a little bit like there was an ending planned and then there was how do we get to the ending thought about and executed and we're reading all of that now. It kind of wraps up in a hurry here. (laughs) It does. Yes, there is a quick, almost rush feel to the ending, which I hope gets some love from the actual novella-sized release of this. But what I mean is it's almost like those mystery stories where things are peppered in and you don't know why until someone has revealed the convoluted plan that explains why the kid had to go to the waterfall. Yeah, there is definitely an element of that here. There's something to it where maybe something's going on. We don't know, though. We don't know until the end, but the end is in, like, not very many pages. So why don't we go through that and we can discuss some of these pacing issues. And like I said, the art of writing a novel is different from the art of writing a short story. And I think Pat does well with more space. I would agree that Pat does well with more space, but I would also say, thinking about this logically, there had to have been an actual deadline for this story to be submitted, where with his other works, it's self-imposed and easily blown through. This being a collection of short stories from multiple authors, I think soliciting a story and saying there is a deadline might have made him go... Well, I don't have time to make this perfect. Here's the end. That's definitely another possible constraint that played a role here. Some people work well with that. I don't 
think Patrick Rothfuss does. He definitely does have a contentious relationship with deadlines. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the text in front of us here. So we begin with Bast returning to the lightning tree. He's limping with it looks like an injured hand with scraped up knuckles. We don't really know why, and we'll find out more as we go along here. I will say, you and I do know why. Because in... How many pages do we have left of this book? 16. Within 16 pages, there's still a little bit of plot and then a wrap-up. That's not a lot. No, and even then, most of it is, I guess what you'd call hints and allegations. We can make some inferences about what actually happened because most of it is through hearsay and rumor. Right. We don't actually follow Bast through all of his exploits. And I think that that starts right about the time that we ended the last episode. I have something to show you. And then we don't get to see what he showed her. Yeah. Like I say, there's a lot left to inference. We can make some guesses and there are some potential explanations. And we'll get to that. Yeah. So at the lightning tree, there are two kids waiting for him, Wilk and Pem who says that Bast smells like Grandau when he's been at his medicine. By medicine, she means whiskey. Right, because that's what her grandpa, Granda, calls medicine. And Pem's mom says he's on the bottle. Well, it makes him feel better, so it's medicine. Um, yeah, yeah, old man. I do want to talk a little bit about Pem. I think that she's characterized very well for being the annoying little sister. Hey, hey, I want to tell you that I did something bad. Please punish me kind of bad, but like not hurt me, but like get mad at me. Pay attention to me. I'm going to do things that are acting out. Please pay attention to me. It's like our cat. There's no such thing as bad attention for some kids. Yeah. And in this case, she is so crestfallen when I did this thing that should annoy you. Okay. Yeah, sure. Whatever, kid. Aww. Yeah, I found that oftentimes that response is the best way to deal with obnoxious kids like that. Just don't care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, you're very smart. Go away. <laughs> so while Bast is having this conversation with Wilk, who I believe that he knows pretty well, Pem is just like, hey, hey, I'm here too. Hi, hi, I'm here too. Hi, hi. But all of that is kind of even a distraction for the audience because... Bast is asking for the kids to go off to catch some falling water for him. And he kind of leads them by the nose a bit about what he wants them to actually do without specifically saying, please go to the waterfall. There's a reason. It's more like, hey, I need some falling water. No, not rain. It can't be still. It can't be out of a pump. No, it can't be the thing that you're thinking. No, no, no. Something else. Use your noggin. <laughs> we will later find out exactly what he's getting at here. But, I mean, this is par for the course for Bast. He does not always come out and just say what he wants. And I think he does that on purpose to obfuscate the reasons. The same reason that he sent Reich away for the entirety of the day. The reason that he told him to go get a needle from someone at the other end of town. Nothing like a fetch quest to get a kid out of the way. Correct. So 
The way that he convinces Wilk to do this is by offering up a riddle because Wilk says, I need a riddle that will stump Tessa, a good one. And so Bass says, I need a favor and I'll trade you a favor for a riddle. So he says the riddle, which is show me something that has never been seen before and will never be seen again. And then it takes Wilk a little while before he just gives up and says, okay, that's a good one. What's the answer? And Bass says, okay, you now owe me another favor because I promised you a riddle, not an answer. <laughs> and Wilk gets mad in the way that only a kid can. Like he's about to yell, so he just storms off. And then he comes back and says, okay, <laughs> fair point. And then we don't actually get the answer to the riddle? So, I mean, depending on how you want to look at things metaphysically, this is going to be a really easy one or a really hard one. I mean, there's that whole idea that you can never step in the same river twice. So, theoretically, anything that is a moment in time, you will never see that exact moment again. And you show someone literally anything, doesn't matter what it was, it will never be seen before or again in exactly the way it was in that moment. So that's neither here nor there, though. That's how I would answer that riddle. But uh, nobody asked me. Also, that's cheating. Anyway. No, it's not. How is that cheating? How is that cheating? Declining to answer now. Okay. So then, yeah, his favor is, I need you to fill this bottle with water that's been caught from midair, naturally falling water. You can't dip it out of a barrel or a stream. And you have to catch it while it's still in the air. Pem catches on that that's from a waterfall. And then, in order to make sure that Pem is also at said waterfall, he's like, I need you to get me 21 perfect acorns. It's a time waster quest. It is specifically there to keep them at the waterfall for an extended period of time because they have to be perfect. Their little hats have to be intact. There can be no holes. You have to check every single one and collect 21 of them and then when you come back, I'll give you this honeycomb. I actually suspect that in this case, it's not so much about making sure that they waste time, but rather about making sure that they are in the vicinity of the waterfall so that they can find something or someone there. No, that's exactly what I mean, though, is that just in case timing doesn't lay out exactly right, there is buffer time. It's like making a bleed on the edge of a business card. It's there so that it overlaps and ensures that when you cut it, it doesn't cut off the printing. There's still enough buffer room. And I think that that's the same thing with the time. There's enough buffer time. If they are stuck there trying to find 21 perfect acorns, it means that they will be in that space wasting their time. <laughs> but they have a goal. They won't just get bored and leave because Bast has asked for Maybe more than a seven-year-old wants to do, but not so much that they'll give up. After this, he takes a quick bath to clean off from his misadventures with the honeycomb and whatever else he was up to. We discover that he's washing off the smell of whiskey, so that means there's probably something involving Martin Still. Something. Something. And looks like he's probably had a few bee stings. I mean, dealing with a beehive, that'll happen. And then also some cuts. Like... Maybe he's hit something. Yeah. Or gotten in a scuffle. Yeah. He says that it was a bear. Could have been a bear. Could have been. So then after that, 
you know, he basically just passes out and takes a big nap. And when he wakes up in the evening, he hears a whistle. And as the sun starts to brush the tops of the western trees, and so he heads downhill. And of course, we get this interesting description of his movement. It says he sprints down, but it, that's not quite the right. You, it almost is like he skipped, but that's what a child would do. And he's not a child. Maybe he pranced or frolicked. Again, I think this is that reference to the sort of satyr legs that he has. Very clearly. It's dark. He doesn't have to keep up appearances. So when he gets to the bottom of the hill, he finds Reich waiting for him with the needle and then also the river stone. And yep, confirms that this needle was in fact borrowed and not traded for or otherwise coerced. So then he starts telling Reich about this charm that he's going to make. And he says that it's the opposite of a come-hither charm. It's a go-thither charm. I love the language used on that. And the idea is that it is supposed to make anyone who would do the bearer of the charm harm run away from them as far as they can go. It's basically turn undead. Yeah, that's the idea. It's turn jerkwad. <laughs> and... Here we learn a little bit more about Reich, though, and I think that there's actually something really touching here. Bast initially conceives of this as a charm that he can just have Reich use. And Reich says, no, actually, this has to be for my mother. And because he's thinking, one, what if I'm not around? And if this charm is all that is keeping my father away and I leave for whatever reason to go do something he can come back and hurt my mom and my sisters. And perhaps most tellingly about his character, he's worried that the charm wouldn't protect his mother from him. He's afraid that he is going to grow up just like his dad. And, you know, this is something that I see a lot with people who have grown up in abusive situations, where they are worried that they will continue that cycle of abuse. And... In my experience, the ones who are self-aware enough to have that thought are the ones that I am least worried about at all. You know, I, I generally think that the only people who worry that they might be bad people are good people. My experience, it's really tough, right? It's when I get angry or stressed or anxious is when I see the elements of the person who was ostensibly supposed to be my parent shine through in my personality. The reactions where I'm not thinking, the reactions where I'm going purely off of this is a stress reaction or I'm angry. And it's harder in those times to prevent those reactions. It's harder to stuff them down. It's harder to be aware of them until they've happened. And I apologize to whomever was in the blast zone, but that person that's usually in the blast zone is just usually me also like sometimes it lashes out against other people and unfortunately because you're the only other person in my home a lot of the times that does go directly on to you and I apologize afterward but it's still it it's like trying to repair something after it's broken it doesn't happen often and it definitely doesn't happen with the frequency that it happened to me but I think we are all products of how we grew up in some fashion. We all have things that were taught to us that some of us are trying desperately to unlearn. And I can give 
more love and care and forgiveness and understanding to the people who are aware that they are reacting in a way that they were taught that they're not proud of. I'm not saying that's the end of wisdom here, like that self-awareness, but it's certainly a beginning and it is a very good start. And, you know, here we see Reich just kind of collapse in a moment of pure vulnerability that we see Bast respond to fairly gently. And he looks at Reich and he says, hey, this is something that you need to hear. And it's really important. You are a good person. You are someone who takes seriously the needs of the people around you. Your thoughts here are about the welfare of your mother and your sisters and the people around you. That's important. That is something that a good person does. And in this moment, he really tells Reich this truth that I think he needs to hear. And then Reich kind of breaks down and Bast takes a hold of him and just hugs him, gives him honest to goodness, actual affection and a place to be safe and that kind of enveloping security. I think all of us have been in that place where the thing that we need most is just for another person to tell us that we are okay people, that it's safe to break down, that it's safe to be ourselves. And I think that's something that Bast does. I mean, he makes a whole thing about being kind of unwise, but he's very perceptive about other people and he's very good at seeing them as they are. And he does that for the kids in the community where he takes them seriously. He takes Reich seriously in a way that none of the adults do, none of the other adults anyway. And so then after this breakdown, Bast agrees, okay, yeah, we'll make the charm for your mother. You have to give it to her as a gift. And Reich is terrified that what if she won't wear it? And Bast has this bit where he knows, of course she'll wear it because it's a gift from her son, knowing that one, Nettie is a good mother and that she loves all of her children dearly and that any gift from any of them no matter how large or small is the sort of thing that she would proudly wear all over. I mean, it kind of reminds me of how your mom, for the longest time, kept all of the Christmas ornaments that you would make in school. Yeah. Even though we both know she hated them. Yeah. I. So when... Okay. Story time about Will growing up. So... <laughs> When I was in preschool, we had sort of these little clay things that we'd cut out uh, you know, with cookie cutters, and then you could paint them, right? And I always painted them black. That was my favorite color as a child. So we had a whole bunch of black Christmas trees, black snowflakes, black reindeer, you name it, everything. I just painted it black. And then occasionally I would paint it brown if we were out of black. Or if they took away your black. Right. <laughs> if for whatever reason I wasn't able to find black paint, I'd use brown paint. Just the darkest color I could find. <laughs> or marker or whatever. But, you know, mom always made sure that those got hung up every year on our Christmas trees. It's the equivalent of the mom who puts all of the macaroni art on the fridge, regardless of its quality. The mere fact that it came from her children means that it is something that she carries for deeply. And now it's a story, and she says it so endearingly. 
Yeah. It's been 35 years, and yet I'm pretty sure she still has some, but she may have, in the move, lost them, which I don't think you're heartbroken over. No, I'm not really. <laughs> the mere fact that she held on to him for as long as she did is, that's enough for me. Uh-huh. Oh, she stopped putting him on the Christmas tree. Yeah, as soon as I stopped coming over for Christmas. And then they never appeared again when we started going. Yeah. <laughs> but the stories did. Yeah. But I think Bast recognizes that, yeah, Nettie's going to wear this. And so he notices this bit here about how mortals are oftentimes blinded by their fears of what they think might be to the point where they can't see what is. Reich can't see his mother for who she really is and how she truly views him because he's so afraid of all of these things that really aren't real. And so that fear and anxiety is getting to him. And so Bast has to come up with a lie and says, well, you have to give it to her as a gift. And then the way to make sure that she wears it is to tell her every morning that you love her and then tell her every evening that you love her. And then she'll always wear it. And this has absolutely nothing to do with keeping his dad away. This has everything to do with, I know that this is a task this kid will do anyway. And it will make him feel like he is doing something, that he is doing something important, that he is protecting his mom. And at the same time, it will make his mom feel so loved and so cherished by her kid. It's only going to do good. Yeah, there is a magic that happens here. It's maybe not a literal magic, right? It's not fairy magic. It's not anything like that. What it is, however, is a form of healing. It's bringing Reich and Nettie and the two little sisters closer together, helping them to really strengthen their familial bond. And knowing that, you know, even with the fact that Jessam is an abusive asshole, with him gone, there will be additional challenges that they will need to overcome together. And it'll be worth doing, but they'll need that strength of bond together. And so... What Bast is doing is giving Reich some agency. He is giving his family this love, this affection, and helping them come together in these difficult times. And that's something of a gift in its own right. It's definitely something that they're going to need. They'll need to have a way to make money. Which Bast has helped take care of. Because he has helped Nettie find a queen among wild bees after they had lost several beehives. So she might be able to rebuild their honey-making enterprise. And their candles and other things that can be made from bee wax. Yeah. Speaking of bee wax, the honeycomb that he had promised to the little girl, Bass decided instead to eat because at that point, he was almost 100% certain she was never coming back. Or at least not with the 21 perfect acorns for reasons that we are about to disclose though we've hinted at them the whole time and he makes the charm and then he takes the wax out of his mouth and gives it to Reich, which is kind of gross and says please wax the little charm thing i've made for you the amulet that you're going to be giving to your mom please sit at the tallest hill you can find so there's a quest that he has to go do so that's going to take time and sit there and rub this wax all over the charm which is another thing that will take time to do. It conveniently keeps him out of the way of things. And it also gives him something to feel like this is something that he made. 
Yes. And we all, no matter what it is, feel a connection more to the things that we have made than the things that we have just bought. This is why people think that Ikea furniture is worth more than it actually is to them sentimentally because they have to build it and they can be proud that they built it. You know, it might not be nicer. And in fact, actually, most of it is not actually wood. So it's not really like it's press board, but it feels nicer because you have an accomplishment. You've built it and it feels like it's definitely yours if you built it. So after that, Bast returns to the waystone and realizes, oh crap, after all of that, I forgot carrots. Where did I put those? I have a few guesses, but we walk in and we've got the usual crew. We've got Cobb, we've got Jake, we've got the apprentice boy who we know is named Aaron and I don't believe gets named Aaron in this either. We've also got Jake and Shep. I did say Jake. Did you say Jake? Oh, I did. Oh, crap. And then Carter will come in later on with some news. So old Cobb and Jake are discussing what's happened to Jessam Williams. Apparently he was out running his trap lines, got jumped by a cougar, and then he went right over Little Cliff Falls and some kids found him all broken up. Some kids. I wonder if those kids are, I don't know, Wilk and Pem? Maybe. And it looks like he was also surrounded by broken glass. Hmm. I wonder, where did that glass come from? Oh, and then also found out that someone busted up Martin still. And Martin's gonna be mad. And then we get a little bit about the perception of Martin. And I think this also is kind of interesting. So, of course, everyone refers to him as Crazy Martin because he is perceived as violent and oftentimes drunken and seemingly unpredictable. But as the group start telling stories about him. There's kind of some themes that we see. So he beat up a priest. Turns out that priest had been basically abusing his position of authority in the town. We don't know exactly how, but he was corrupt. We find out that he beat up a tinker, which shocks Quoth to no end. Right, he just gets so hung up over a tinker. Why did he hurt a tinker? I don't understand. But a tinker... A tinker? Turns out, though, he beat up this tinker when he saw the guy basically laying hands on an unwilling girl in town. And, you know, he stepped in when everyone else was too afraid to do anything or too embarrassed to do anything. None of my business. Not my circus, not my monkeys, except Martin is like anything in this town is my circus and my monkeys. GTFO. And what we come to find out is really crazy in this case is that Martin does not care about the social conventions that protect abusers. And so if someone is hurting someone in the community, regardless of their social standing, he will go all Batman on them. He does not care what would be considered socially acceptable or what their position in society is, which I think is a commentary on how oftentimes People are judged mad simply because they don't accept these sort of consensual delusions that we all otherwise go along with. You know, the, the guys basically talk about how, wow, you know, if I were on his bad side, I'd not want to be in town. He's absolutely nuts. He'll go crazy on this guy. And then Carter walks in late, <laughs> says, yeah, Jessam paid me to take him all the way to Baden. 
and he took the king's coin, <laughs> you know? He pretty much has abandoned his family and gone as far away as he can for fear of being murdered by the owner of the still, who probably is aware of who stole from him and wasted all of the liquor, to be quite honest, probably either by drinking it all in one go or breaking all the bottles on his way down the falls or both. Well, not only that, he also broke some of the kettles and distilling equipment in the still. Well, someone did. Someone did. And there's a certain implication that it was Jessam who probably did that. Was it actually? Maybe. We don't know. A fall injury can look a lot like a blunt force, I hit something injury. He could have tripped and fallen into somebody else's fist. That too. Unknown. There's a lot of things that are, quote, unknown, but implied. And here's where we see sort of the full circle of all of Bast's machinations. Clearly, he has found some way to engineer it so that Martin will think that Jessam was the one who busted up his still and has managed to convince Jessam that Martin has a basically a mad on for him and will probably just kick the ever-living tar out of him on sight. And with that, he knows that he has to get out. He has to leave. That's the only safe thing for him to do. And Bass continues to cover his own butt and move suspicion off of him by asking, Martin's not going to hurt the kids or the wife, right? Oh, Martin would never hurt someone like that. <laughs> Martin is actually quite gentle to people who are not causing any harm. He's actually a fairly decent fellow. And in fact, yeah, he's actually known for protecting them. If Martin's crazy, he's the kind that just does not care about what is considered lawful so much as what's right. And that's why people judge him that way. You know, clearly he's seen some things in the army that have changed him and he responds differently. But yeah, I don't know that crazy is the right label for him. After everyone goes home and it's just Quoth and Bast left in the inn, Quoth is able to kind of have a real conversation-ish with Bast. And Bass says, I learned some things today, Reshi. Oh, what'd you learn? I learned where Emberly takes her bath. And then I fell out of a tree. <laughs> yeah. Explains the hand injury, which is funny because he didn't have that injury directly after falling out of the tree. He had that injury after coming back from the uh, farm. He does the sort of thing where he answers a question, kind of. He answers a question by telling a truth. But it might not be a related truth. Right. <laughs> he told a true thing. Yes, I did fall out of a tree. It's not how he got hurt. Nope. He also fesses up to having gotten the carrots and having no idea where they are now. Oh, well. I think at this point, Kvothe is pretty well aware of the types of shenanigans Bast gets up to. And generally accepts them because one thing we do know about Kvothe, at least at this stage in his life, he's also a pretty good judge of character. And I think he recognizes that maybe he doesn't want to know all the details, but his apprentice is definitely a good person and someone that he still appreciates having around. At the end, he says, it's great that you learned that, Bast. 
but I really do wish that you'd spend a little more time on your studies. And Bass replies, oh, I learned a lot of things today, not just that. Okay, fine. Impress me. What did you learn today? Nettie Williams found a wild hive of bees today, and she managed to catch the queen. Again, I think there was a ending planned, and that how the ending came to be was reverse engineered and kind of plopped in that last bit, right? Like, we've already established that Bass sends kids out to go entertain themselves doing goodness knows whatever. He's really good with kids. The one thing that we didn't mention about the kitten that the mayor's daughter insists on is that the kitten is a magic kitten and she's already determined that it's a magic kitten and so she tests Bast by asking if it's a magic kitten and then Bast has to delicately work around certain things of like I I don't want to tell the six-year-old how I know that the kitten's a girl kitten I just don't we're not we're not going to have that conversation I will get in trouble I will get in so much trouble this is such a stupid thing to get in trouble for I am not doing this you know and so there's some of those like, okay, so Bast is just really good with kids. He thinks about it. He doesn't treat them like they're stupid, but he also doesn't overshare. He's very friendly. People seem to like him. He's also charming. He is a massive flirt. And you know what? As long as it's all consensual and between adults, cool. And great. You know, we've got all that establishing bit. And that takes a while. And then the Things that lead up to all of the audience, please infer this, happen within the last, like, 15 pages of the novella, of the story. And it's all convenient because you've already been primed to know that he just sends kids out on these quests to say, hey, have something to do. And then to realize that he's pulled all of these little puppet strings. But he doesn't pull all of those strings specifically throughout the whole story. Most of those strings are pulled right at the end. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff where... I think, like you say, yeah, there's a preordained outcome and then kind of working backward, you can see the shape of the outline. And then you can also see where I think Pat was having more fun writing some scenes rather than others. He has more fun, I think, writing scenes that are just sort of these little character vignettes and interactions than he does necessarily strictly action scenes. Yeah, I don't think there was a ton of action. And I think that's also partly why we don't see any of the violence. And I'm actually perfectly okay with not seeing the violence. But there is implications of violence. There is implication that Bast is dangerous to the wrong people. Or the right people. Whatever. The people that would wrong him or especially hurt a child. We know that he can be threatening. We know that he can be terrifying even. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen that in the main novel. <laughs> yes. I would like a little more of that malice to be fleshed out. We'll see if that actually does get fleshed out here in the narrow road between desires. Right. I kind of want to know where the attention and where the love and the massaging and the expansion of the story really comes down to. I'm very curious because there's some places where there's a lot of really cool detail, a lot of Hey, look, it's a shampoo commercial. Right. <laughs> I mean, it really does feel like all the bath scenes are shampoo commercials and body wash commercials, you know. Just that slow motion, flip the hair back and all the water spray and all that stuff. Like, it, yeah. Suds dripping down moist skin. 
I'd ask you to refrain from using that word, but cool. What, skin? You're adorable. Anyway, I do actually like this as a character study about Bast, and I am glad that it got an expanded release, and I'm very curious about where those bits of expansion are. And I think it's a fun breakaway from what can sometimes feel a little bit of a slog to get through with a gigantic book like The Wise Man's Fear or Name of the Wind. I also appreciate that while the slow regard of silent things is in its own right an interesting thing that was created, The Lightning Tree actually feels like a story and slow regard feels like an experiment. Yeah. And I don't hate it. I especially don't hate it when you listen to Pat read it because it has almost a tumbling cadence through the whole thing. And he does a good job of reading that out in the way that he meant it to be received. But trying to read that thing in text form, it's hard. Where I think that the lightning tree can definitely be one of those things that captures you and gets you compelled enough to read to the end. I just wish that the end didn't feel like it wove that story like playing yarn chicken with crocheting. Like, it feels like there was an ending. It feels like we have to rush to get to it. Yeah. Like I say, I think Patrick Rothfuss, as an author, generally, I guess I would describe his style as expansive. He is not someone that I associate with short, tightly wound plots. He is the sort of person who is happiest when he has a little bit of room to meander. He generally does good when he has the ability to just have illustrative character moments. And I think that three quarters of this was illustrative character moments and expansion. And then he's like, oh, ending. This thing does have to have an ending. Crap. <laughs> Endings are hard. Yes. I think that's the other thing to keep in mind. And I think that expanding this short story out may have been an exercise on Pat's part to help him get ready for what he has planned next. I don't know what that is, but... You know what? I'm glad that he's writing more. Me too. That can only ever be a good thing. Yeah. I don't feel like I am owed anything from him. I just like to see people doing the things that they enjoy. And if writing is bringing him joy at this point, I'm really happy for him and I want that to be the case for him. Agreed. And I think we can all agree that more of these stories is going to be a net good for everybody. So with that, let's move into our seven words. Okie dokie. You had seven words from the books? I did. And you were kind enough to give me a list because as we all know, I listen to things and you actually have the actual text. So... You gave me a few options, and I will read out the ones that I think are my favorites, and then the one that I've chosen. Guess what I caught wind of today? I feel like that's the great gossip opener for the town, especially from Cobb or from like any of that crew. Guess what I caught wind of today? And by this point, if the person at the end knows about it, if it's the end of the day, everyone in the town knows about it. This town is tiny. Gossip spreads like wildfire. <laughs> he feels loads better with his medicine. This is just such an interesting characterization of a little kid. And one thing that I really appreciate is that none of the kids 
sound naive or stupid. They all sound like the adults all think they're naive and or stupid, that they're not as trusted as they should be to be able to handle things. Kids are smart. Kids know a lot more than you think that they do. And then, but now you're asking for the answer. It's like, I'll give you a riddle, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to actually give you an answer to the riddle. That's not what we traded for. And I think that that's a wonderful thing to realize that Bast is just winding this kid up. And he takes kind of a pleasure out of that. But I think the thing that I really wanted to use as my seven words was, I need a favor. I'll trade you. In my current D&D game that I'm playing with a bunch of, essentially, strangers from the internet, one of our characters is a rogue and a thief. But as long as they give the person they're stealing from something of, in their mind, equal or greater value back, and that could just mean the same weight, <laughs> that's the same value, something that weighs the same, same value, <laughs> then that's okay. They don't take, they trade. Sometimes they trade unwillingly, but they trade. Yeah, that definitely also kind of speaks to that whole fairy bargain type thing. They are a fae. Yep. So I had seven words from life, and so I have two options. One is, I got the underbed storage built, <laughs> which, I mean, that's good and all. But I think my best one is, wings are procured on my way back. <laughs> Every now and then, you got to go out and get hot wings. So, little bit of story time. We have had this underbed storage that I've needed to build for months. We're just going to say months. I don't know how many months, but months. And I finally built it in an attempt to keep beans from trying to destroy the underside of the bed. It hasn't worked yet. <sighs> he is just a trouble muffin. That is what this little boy is. He's just a trouble muffin. And I love the poor little fuzzy thing that keeps getting yelled at every night and kicked out of the room until he can be nice. <laughs> yeah, maybe as we get more underbed storage built, we'll reduce the amount of heartache that he causes with all of this. We'll see. Yeah, <sighs> the things we do for our cat. However, yes, so we've been going through just a run of spicy things all week and it culminated in hot wings and cauliflower wings. Yeah, so with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week as we dive into the narrow road between desires, hopefully. Probably. If not, we'll be back to the wise man's fear. But um, I don't think we're going to. And I don't know where we left off. And I'm not going to go looking for it. Because currently my plan is to read new book. So that'll be next time, and hope you guys all have fun. And have had a good holiday season so far. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating this world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination such as it is, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page patreon.com slash waystonepod. I think for now, because we've been otherwise super busy, we're probably going to keep a hiatus going on our Sandman episodes until or unless we get people to sign up for that tier. It feels kind of to have stuff out there that we've put a lot of effort into 
just to not have it be something that people really want. On that note, if there is something that would be fun for you at some form of Patreon tier, let us know if it's like reacting to current pop culture media, if it's talking about D&D, if it's something that is a fun nerdy thing that we can get into or that one of us can do without having to take too much time from the other person. Like if y'all need to see me react to things on YouTube, I might try to figure out how to do that. But it all really depends on what you guys want. For now though, we are on Discord and we do tend to go through flurries of memeing. Yep, and we're also open for conversation, just general chit chat. We have a fun little community over there. And we'd love to hear what you think about the narrow road between desires. So with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Okay, we're gonna ask you to not uh 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 hear the whole thing because I have to take a lot of that out. Okay. And then I can't make coherent sentences. Uh. 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 Okay. Are all your uhs out? I can neither confirm nor deny.